This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We've uh, tried to be boosters of aviation, uh, that is, private aviation, on this show on numerous occasions. In our third segment today, we're going to do the same in an odd kind of way, I suppose, by speaking with the author about a book titled JFK Jr., Ten Years After the Crash, A Pilot's Perspective. That incident uh, back in 1999 has certainly uh, discouraged a lot of people when it comes to uh, using small planes, etc., but uh, that's an accident that shouldn't have happened, and we'll do an analysis today with author Douglas Lonstrom by taking a look at just how many things had to have gone wrong that day and a lot of bad decisions that led to that crash. We don't believe that uh, small planes are inherently uh, that dangerous if one exercises the usual amount of caution, and we'll discuss that in our third segment today. Let us begin today's program as we like to do with On This Date in History. The date in question is the 24th of February. It was on February 24th in 1821 that Mexican independence leader Agustin de Iturbide issued the Iguala Plan, calling for a European prince, if one could be found, to rule an independent Mexico. As it would turn out, Iturbide himself became emperor. Sad in history how often the strong man takes over after an independence movement, eh? Four years later, February 24th, 1825, Thomas Bowdler died in Wales. Bowdler stripped Shakespeare's plays of language he thought inappropriate and published an acceptable version in The Family Shakespeare. He made his name a verb. To Bowdlerize is to expurgate. On this date in 1848, French King Louis-Philippe, the citizen king, was overthrown by revolutionary citizens. I like that phrase, though. Citizen king. Which almost ranks right up there with Louis XIV's The State? That's me. February 24th in 1868 that the U.S. House of Representatives voted to impeach President Andrew Johnson, citing Johnson's removal of Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton as a violation of the Tenure of Office Act. This whole, uh, this whole impeachment of President Johnson was a trumped-up bunch of baloney by uh, evil Republican politicians, something they got around to repeating during the Clinton administration. For the record, uh, Johnson was the first president to be impeached. He was not convicted. Bill Clinton was the second. He was also not convicted. And if you're keeping score, Richard M. Nixon was not impeached. He resigned the presidency before the proceedings could go forward. It was on February 24th in 1917 that Great Britain released the Zimmerman Note, a coded telegram message from Germany to its ambassador in Mexico, suggesting an alliance if the U.S. should enter World War I. Mexico, as a result, would get Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona back. This note helped turn U.S. public opinion firmly against Germany. And on this date in 1968, the discovery of pulsars, pulsating radio sources from deep space, were announced. We now know that these formerly mysterious radio signals come from spinning neutron stars. The uh, rotation period and thus interval between observed pulses is very regular in many neutron stars. Uh, for some pulsars, the regularity is as precise as an atomic clock. 
By the way, those plaques we attached to the Voyager spacecraft going out uh, out of the solar system do contain information on where to find our solar system based on references to nearby pulsars. Personally, the irresistible part about that story where they sent a gold disc record out into space, which included the sounds of Earth, people praying, various musical performances, was the famous Saturday Night Live parody of this, <laughs> announcing the first message received from deep space, send more Chuck Berry. Our quote of the day comes from Andre Gide, who said, Everything that needs to be said has already been said. But since no one was listening, everything must be said again. Boy, that's how we feel on this show sometimes. Our quote of the day is, is months old, but comes from David Letterman. In the wake of that Russian spy story being uh, revealed in New York, said Letterman, The Russian spies tried to blend in. They were acting like Americans. As a matter of fact, for two weeks, they were pretending they loved soccer. Our joke of the day comes from a cartoon from the Humor Times. Shows a panhandler out in the streets of New York City down in his luck, holding out a hat next to a sign that says, Help! Spend it all on how to survive a stock market crash books. Our stat of the day comes from the Wall Street Journal. Not always a reliable source, but according to the journal, about 23% of all U.S. workers now require licenses to do their jobs, with more than 1,110 professions regulated by various states. Among the jobs that require licenses in some states are florists, interior designers, manicurists, and shampoo specialists. And you know, boy, a friend of mine ran into one of those phony shampoo specialists. Man, was her hair a mess. Interestingly, at least to date, hosting a radio show does not require a license. Our bonus stat of the day, this year's Super Bowl victory by the Green Bay Packers over the Pittsburgh Steelers was seen by 111 million viewers, the largest TV audience in U.S. history. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for getting poked. That's their quote. After Columbia University researchers found that 83% of prostitutes have Facebook pages and that the average hooker now gets a quarter of their clients that way. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for banks and hedge funds after, swindly, after swindler Bernie Madoff said from a jailhouse interview that several large institutions were complicit in making money off his massive Ponzi scheme. Said Madoff, the attitude was sort of, if you're doing something wrong, we don't want to know. And it was an ugly week last week for Walmart in the wake of four workers being fired from a Utah Walmart for tackling and disarming a gunman. Apparently, Walmart policy requires workers to, quote, withdraw, unquote, if a suspected shoplifter pulls a gun. 
but the force said they had no choice when the gunman put his weapon in one worker's back. Gabriel Stewart says learning he'd been fired felt worse than when I had the gun to my back. Well, frankly, at Radio Parallax, that doesn't sound as bad to us. But it's easy to imagine how people had to react or felt they had to react, and, and firing them for that? Good God. Yet another reason to consider not shopping at Walmart. And when I say that, of course, I would note that uh, that opinion, like all those heard in this program, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. None of whom, we have to add, uh, to our knowledge, ever had to tackle a gunman in a Walmart. All right, we have to talk about the international uh, political scene in the wake of the fact that Libya is now having a lot of uh, turmoil. It's surrounded by two toppled governments on either side, Tunisia to its west, Egypt uh, to its east. Could this mark the beginning of the end for Muammar Gaddafi? We'll have to see. I must say that the actions of the American government, uh, that which invades Middle Eastern countries to depose dictators, has been sort of, uh, well, let's just say puzzling. The administration has not scored a lot of points in the streets of Cairo. Note of the Washington Post, when protests began, there was an assumption among young Egyptians that America could not help but stand with them. By the end, as one opposition leader put it, it became clear that Americans are just waiting to see which side wins. The New York Times reported that Obama's foreign policy advisors and aides were deeply divided as to what to do about Egypt. Members of what were described as the traditional foreign policy establishment, including Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, were warning that Mubarak's immediate ouster might lead to chaos, while younger, more idealistic aides insisted that America's failure to side with the protesters could be remembered with bitterness by a rising generation. Now, I'm sure that many of you find it a little bit odd that uh, we did invade Iraq, supposedly to get rid of this, uh, this terrible tyrant. And meanwhile, in other Arab capitals, as the populace uh, uh, protests to try and get rid of its ruling elite, uh, we just uh, don't seem to be jumping into the whole fray. I guess that's why it's called diplomacy. But the Arab world does seem to be on fire right now, attending to, to rid itself of bad governments, and you'd think we'd be behind this. We'll continue to monitor events as they proceed. Speaking of monitoring events, how about the fact that Ariana Huffington sold the HuffingtonPost.com website to AOL for $315 million. After dividing the spoils among venture capitalist pals of hers, she'll walk away with $18 million personally and a new title as president and editor-in-chief of AOL's Huffington Post Media Group. Wrote Tim Rutten in the Los Angeles Times, To understand Huffington's business model, picture a galley rowed by slaves and commanded by pirates. After all her bluster about Wall Street plutocrats and crony capitalism, she's made a fortune off the backs of unpaid scribes and content, quote, aggregation, unquote, a polite term for stealing from, legi from legitimate news outlets that actually pay their writers. Wrote David Carr in the New York Times, Huffington Post is basically a template for all digital media where low-cost or no-cost content is becoming the norm. And boy, talking about standing on the sidelines and seeing which side's going to win and then jumping in, that, that strikes us as the uh, Ariana Huffington modus operandi. When her husband ran for Senate some years ago, she was an arch-conservative. Then realizing there was a market for opposition to arch-conservatism, she switched sides. Wrote Chris Hedges, 
The sale of the Huffington Post to AOL for $315 million and the tidy profit of reportedly at least several million dollars made by principal owner and founder Ariana Huffington, who is already rich, is emblematic of this new paradigm of American journalism. The Huffington Post, as Stephen Colbert pointed out when he stole the entire content and rechristened it the Cole Buffington Repost, produces little itself. The highly successful site, like most internet sites, is largely pirated from other sources, especially traditional news organizations, or is the product of unpaid writers who are rechristened, quote, citizen journalists, unquote. It's driven by the celebrity gossip that dominates cheap tabloids with one or two stories that come from the New York Times or one of the wire services to give it a veneer of journalistic integrity. Hollywood celebrities, or at least their publicists, write windy and vapid commentaries. And this, I fear, is what news is going to look like in the future. The daily reporting and monitoring of city halls, courts, neighborhoods, and government, along with investigations into corporate fraud and abuse, will be replaced by sensationalist garbage and web packages that are made to look like news, but contain little real news. He goes on, Any business owner who uses largely unpaid labor with a handful of underpaid non-union employees to build a company that sold for a few hundred million dollars, no matter how he or she is introduced to you on the television screen, is not a liberal or a progressive. Those who take advantage of workers, whatever their outward ideologic veneer to make profits of that magnitude, are charter members of the exploitative class. It was bad enough that Huffington used her site for flagrant self-promotion, although the cult of the self has reached such dizzying proportions in American society that such behavior is almost expected, but there's an even sadder irony that this was carried out in the name of journalism. Something's happening here, Bob Dylan sang in The Ballad of a Thin Man, but you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? I don't know. Provocative remarks, but when I look at what... (laughs) What's passing for mainstream journalism, you have to shake your head as well. In the wake of this brewing, possibly wonderful news story about the Sacramento Kings moving to Anaheim, we have this bit of so-called journalism from the Sacramento Bee. To quote Miss Voison, They can't do this now. They just can't do this. Abandon Sacramento while the community's in the throes of a crippling economic slump and psychological depression? Split for Anaheim less than a decade after being characterized as the NBA's model franchise? After almost 26 years as the cultural, sports, and entertainment identity of a region? Not the Kings. Please. No. This is serious, folks. Well, it might be serious for Eileen Voison, who has to write about sports drivel every day. Eh, But for the rest of us, I think it's considerably less momentous. This is all based on the fact that the NBA commissioner, David Stern, acknowledged last week that the Sacramento Kings and Anaheim officials have held talks about a potential team move. But Stern said he didn't know how, didn't know the status of the talks. In response to this, eight billboards went up Tuesday night all over Sacramento in an attempt to galvanize the populace into uh, doing whatever we can to keep the Kings here. Well, you know, if keeping the Kings here requires public money or so that Las Vegas casino billionaire owners don't have to fund it themselves, well, then they can just move to Anaheim. The notion that the Sacramento Kings are the cultural, sports, and entertainment identity of the greater Sacramento region is just pathetic. Personally, I hope that many will answer the radio parallax call to mobilize and, if necessary, 
help the boys pack. Personally, I think the Sacramento Kings moving to Anaheim will, in one fell swoop, improve both areas. Here's a curious story. Faced with an epidemic of lung cancer, the People's Republic of China has ordered its entertainment industry to limit smoking scenes in movies and on television. Cigarettes are ubiquitous on Chinese screens. Fully 90% of films and TV shows depict people smoking. But the State Administration of Radio, Film, and Television said this week that from now on, producers must restrict smoking to scenes essential for character development and that such scenes should be, quote, as short as possible, unquote. Minors may not be shown smoking at all. More than half of all adult men in China smoke, and the country is the world's biggest producer and consumer of tobacco products. Each year, one million Chinese die of tobacco-related illnesses, and that figure is expected to double in the next decade. Thankfully, tobacco is under siege here in America as well. New York City will soon prohibit anyone with a lighted cigarette from venturing into its parks, beaches, or crowded public gatherings. Personally, I think this is a very good thing. I had a patient last weekend lament the fact that as many times as he tried, he could not stop smoking. The stats show that uh, next to crack cocaine, tobacco is the most addicting drug out there. When you restrict it from public areas, you make it easier for the smoker to quit. And of course, smoking is somewhat uh, unique among uh, drugs that are abused, in that when someone near you is abusing it, well, you're abusing it too, unless you manage to stay upwind. Let's uh, close this segment with some political commentary by The Economist magazine which, although it tends to be conservative, does not, run to the, does not run to the American version of conservatism in that it's sane. Note of The Economist, if only Mr. Rumsfeld had not responded to George Bush Jr.'s call-up in 2001, his career would have been judged by history as valuable and successful. Iraq, of course, has ruined all of that. His attempt to shift most of the blame onto others, mainly Condoleezza Rice, the then National Security Advisor, and Paul Bremer, the civilian administrator of Iraq, is successful up to a point. It is abundantly clear that Ms. Rice badly failed to serve up the right policy options to the president. And it is equally clear that Mr. Bremer's two first edicts as head of the Coalition Provisional Authority to fire every member of the Ba'ath Party and to disband the Iraqi army were catastrophic. Valiantly, though he tries in these memoirs, Mr. Rumsfeld cannot avoid complicity in both of these debacles. He was, of course, a central participant in the policy meetings that Ms. Rice chaired, and it's really no good blaming Mr. Bremer. Mr. Bremer worked for him. One amusing oddity emerges. In his quest to exonerate himself, Mr. Rumsfeld is quite prepared to include Mr. Bush, rightly, in his list of the guilty. Anyway... British conservatives tend to be tough but fair, as opposed to the pathetic thing going on in Mississippi right now. Have you heard about this? Yes, apparently down in Mississippi, they're thinking about putting some vanity license plates out honoring Nathan Bedford Forrest, wrote Leonard Pitts in his nationally syndicated column, which I think is very appropriate for a, a Black History Month. Nathan Bedford Forrest was a cotton planter and a trader in horses, cattle, and black people. At the outbreak of the Civil War, Forrest raised a cavalry unit to fight for the Confederacy. He is remembered as a military genius whose daring and unpredictability gave Union forces fits. He's also remembered for leading a rebel band that overwhelmed the Union stronghold, 
Fort Pillow, Tennessee, then massacring 300 mostly black soldiers and civilians, including children, after the soldiers had dropped their weapons. According to official reports, black soldiers were nailed to logs, buried alive, and gunned down where they stood. Finally, Forrest is remembered as a founder and the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Known in Leonard Pitts, the Klan, of course, is America's preeminent terrorist group. This is the legacy of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Now, the state of Mississippi is considering whether to honor that legacy through the issuance of vanity license plates. The request to honor Forrest was made by the Mississippi branch of the Sons of the Confederate Veterans, a group often found neck deep in attempts to rewrite and sanitize the odious history of the Confederacy. For what it's worth, Mississippi Governor Haley Barber, who's eyeing a presidential run in 2012, said he doesn't think the state legislature will approve the vanity plates. He rejected a call by the Mississippi NAACP to denounce the idea. I don't go around denouncing people, he said proudly. And on that note, I think we need a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. we got lots of stuff to round up in segment two. And in our third and final segment, where we traditionally do obituaries, we'll be talking to Dr. Douglas Lonstrom about his book on JFK Jr. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. 